music now. And today we have in the studio Mr. Donald Fagan, which uh, I have to say is an honor. Thank you for being here, Donald. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I would start by talking about a song not from your very extensive catalog, but actually a song by the Eels, Dead of Winter. Mm -hmm. That's a song that you and I guess your wife posted on... Facebook, we posted lyrics in honor of, of Walter Becker, who who we uh, lost very recently. What was it about that song? I was. It's a beautiful set of lyrics, beautiful song. I was struck by that post. Well, my wife's a huge fan of of the Eels, and uh, we there was something just I think somber and appropriate about it. Let's hear that for just a moment. Standing in the dark outside the house. Breathing in the cold and sterile air Well, I was thinking how it must feel So, obviously, it's been a lot. How has the, the weather in your head been this year dealing with this? Uh, well, at first it was a little stormy uh, when my partner passed on um, in uh, September. But, uh, you know... Uh, it wasn't totally uh, unexpected, I have to say. He was ill for quite a while. And um, I kind of knew uh, a month or two before that, that it didn't look good for him. And um, life goes on. Yeah. You're really starting to show off with a bang here. Yeah, no, it's it's just certainly is no, something. I yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just kidding you. Yeah, yeah. I wish it was a different year, yeah. as we all do on every level, I would imagine. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. To sidestep that for mm-hmm. one second, what, maybe maybe we should go to a song that you actually came out with this year with Todd Rundgren. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Called Tinfoil Hat. Right. And it's not much of a mystery what this song is about. It, no. It's, it's, it's pretty direct. It's a song about Donald Trump. So I, I guess obviously you're sharing many people's feelings about the the other horrors of this year. Yeah, you know we've. I was uh, taking a vacation in uh, on the Hawaiian island of Kauai, where <clears throat> Todd Rundgren has a house, and uh, and uh, we're pals, and we were sitting around, and uh, I think it was just just after the election, I think, and uh, yeah, we 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 felt we had to, you know. Had to vent, so we wrote this uh, tune. Yeah, this I was going to call it the the Pope of Douche Town, <laughs> but then I uh, we figured uh, Tinfoil Hat was just as good. Let's hear that for a moment. He's coming down the escalator with a girl from East of here. <laughs> he wants to make the country greater. So here is reality imitating the the more grotesque imaginings that you might have had over the years. I have to say, mm. it's it, it's uh, you literally can't make up our new reality. It feels like no, actually, it's it's kind of it makes it difficult to uh, to write uh, after doing any kind of satire or political satire because it's it really outstrips any kind of fiction you might you know want to create. You've also been playing with a young band the night flyers and you know it's funny you've been uh, you've been tough on not only the younger generation but the generation born post 1960 but you know these guys are 20s 30s they're young what's mm-hmm. what surprised you about the generational interchange there well you know these guys are from upstate around woodstock new york in that area and um they're unusual kids i think they're uh 
they're you know into older kinds of music Connor Kennedy is a really great uh, sort of a prodigy guitar player and uh, you know we've been hanging out the last couple of years and so uh, I wanted to do some uh, of my own material and uh, since you know I knew these guys and I had seen them play uh, seemed like a good idea to take these guys out and they're they're just fantastic you know I don't think they're the average millennial bears I think at least one of them might have said that there's been talk of maybe recording with them has that been something in your head yeah well yeah I've been sending Connor some uh, tunes that I've been working on and uh, yeah I'd, I'd love to do that and now the the idea is clearly as you said in, in your statement to to continue on with quote the Steely Dan band yeah for sure mm-hmm Obviously, there's a, a legal entanglement that you're in that, that I, I presume, like with many legal entanglements, can't be spoken of too much. But do you imagine that's going to be any impediment? Do you see any, any problem proceeding? Um, no, not really. I mean, it's one of these things where, uh, you know, years ago, uh, really decades ago, uh, when we started uh, the band, um, Walter and I had a contract. And uh, it was a really simple thing that a lot of bands have. It's, it's just as if someone is... Uh, resigns or is fired or or dies um they sell their stock their rock and roll stock i guess <laughs> back to the company <laughs> so we signed this thing and the idea was that uh, and and um it ended up to be just walter and i were the remaining uh, partners and um you know 50 uh, 50 partners and um, the idea is that you know if somebody dies that you know the other guy would essentially run the band and take control of the band and all that kind of stuff so uh, we're just um trying to defend the uh, that contract the, the original contract right mm -hmm. of course steely dan except you know perhaps at the very beginning was not so much a band as a sort of entity its very nature was always fascinating to me that that it was you know it was you and walter and after the first couple albums and you know whoever you felt could play the songs best yeah it started as a band of um, course yeah but um after uh you know a couple tours on the road uh, uh walter and i weren't really having that much fun on the road in those days the conditions were harsh and we were opening for a lot of heavy metal groups and so on it was it wasn't ideal so um we decided to just record, and uh, of course the other guys wanted to go out and play, so uh, uh, you know, basically we dissolved that particular band and then started uh, working with studio musicians because because we started as staff writers out in L.A. for ABC Dunhill Records. They had their own studio like built into this um, building, this, this the ABC building, so we would get to see all these great studio players come in and, and do tracks, you know, starting 9 o'clock in the morning for... Uh, you know, uh, they do jingles, they do TV themes, but the musicians were amazing. You know, Jim Gordon was often playing the drums, and and uh, Michael Omardian was playing the piano, and so on. So mm -hmm. we uh, we got to know these guys, and uh, we said, "Hey, let's bring these guys in to play." I mean, the funny thing is, in my estimation, that original band was. Although you have many unhappy memories of, of touring and the live shows, there's some documentation of that original band smoking live. That record plant bootleg is, is fantastic. There's yeah, we got pretty good uh, towards the end of it, actually. You know, they were all good players, and uh, I think it, got, it, it took a uh, leap when Mike McDonald joined the band as a, you know, a second singer and keyboard, and uh, it was great to, to be 
playing with him. Just as a quick side note while we're in this era, there's the um, famous slash infamous spoken intro to the live version of Bodhisattva. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I think, is one of the funniest things that's ever been put on record. Maybe we can hear that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're glad you made it here tonight because you're going to miss out. You can tell your friend tomorrow that they're going to miss out on a damn good thing we're going to give you tonight. And one thing I can tell you, brother, he is here tonight. Mr. Magnificent One is here. The beautiful one is here. <laughs> <laughs> you little old pretty one is here, too. You know, whatever. Here is the magnificent one, the one and the only one, Mr. Stilly Danny, whatever. That was your bus driver? Is that... Is the, uh, uh, no, actually, he was one of the truckers. Okay. Uh, he drove the uh, one of the semis, that, you know, full of equipment. And his name was Jerome Anatone. I don't know what's become of him, but... Um, one night he asked if you know he could he could introduce us and and he he was pretty uh happy by about uh showtime every night and uh so uh you know he would announce the show every night and that one happened to be recorded he didn't really know the name of the band or who was who he thought your name was steely don or something was that uh, yeah. well yeah or stevie dan <laughs> steve right <laughs> yeah he wasn't exactly sure who he was working for there's a story about him once he he uh yeah, he was he was you know I guess an alcoholic essentially, and he would he uh, you know they have these big loading uh, docks when you go into a venue with the uh, door that opens vertically, those sort of corrugated doors, you know, and and uh, he once just uh, he didn't wait for the door to open completely and just ran the truck in and it sheared the top of the truck <laughs> off. <laughs> That's fine work there. His uh, his MC <laughs> skills though were were it was excellent. Unparalleled, yeah, excellent. He could have been a DJ. <laughs> before there were DJs. So the other thing that you said over the years was you guys figured out if you didn't have a band, no one could make you tour. Is that a joke or was that part of the, the literal um, thinking there? Um, well, maybe unconsciously. Do you remember sitting down with Walter and actually having that discussion of it doesn't have to be a band anymore, it could just be us and we could... Do you know what I mean? Was it a conscious sit-down kind of decision? The way I remember it was we were in London, I remember, and we did a couple of shows at the Rainbow, and uh, they went well, but then I, I got I got sick, like my, uh, I had some kind of uh, uh, really bad laryngitis, so uh, we, all, we all came home from that, and then we did a few more gigs on the West Coast, and, you know, both of us were really worn out from the, you know, sort of style of touring we were doing in those days, and we both said, you know what? We're gonna die if we can keep doing this. <laughs> and uh, let's let's you know after the next record, let's just try to talk. The president of the company, this guy Jay Lasker, a big cigar smoking uh, entrepreneur. Um, if we could just you know record records, and and he was fine with it as long as they sold. And and in fact, you know after we stopped touring, the the sales of course rose great. They were they were inflated. So uh, you know maybe it was better that we didn't tour. One of the things that also afforded you, of course, was an ability to achieve ever greater levels of sort of um, technical achievement and 
perfection, both sonic and, and musical. Walter probably post Everything Must Go or maybe even a little earlier, he had gotten a little sick, he said, of perfectionism and chasing that thing, which was fascinating to me because that's sort of part of the very essence of what people think of as Steely Dan. And I'm not sure you ever got sick of it. <laughs> yeah, I think we were both getting a little uh, tired of, of the uh, difficulty of making those those kinds of records. Although I don't think we were ever truly like perfectionists. We I don't think we thought of ourselves as we just wanted the, the records to sound professional, like big band jazz records, you know, like right? Clean, you know, good clean playing. And but uh, I think maybe it's true we did go overboard. And by the last record in the seventies called Gaucho, we may have uh, you know just went past it a little bit. I think that's what I love about that record. But yeah, I, I yeah, mean, I like it too. I like it too. It's but it's uh, you know maybe maybe. Uh, there were some live live playing on that record, certainly, but uh, there could have been more, I think. Not to sound like when in your Ennio Morricone interview when you're presenting him with theories and he just grunts, but there's a certain unity, perhaps unintentional, between the themes of that record and the arguably over-labored music. It actually mm -hmm. works, and, and it works very well together. Yeah, but, no, I think it, it turned out to be a thing. That's for sure, yeah. There's so many great stories about the lengths that you guys went to. I mean, one, of course, is Wendell, which mm -hmm. was a drum machine so primitive. There's a story that someone had to type into the machine for 5 to 20 minutes to get maybe one bar or something like well, that. Well, yeah, this was in the early days of uh, digital uh, recording and digital sampling and all that. And uh, we were having trouble getting a track, and I uh, forget which one it is. Hey 19, actually. Hey 19, yes. maybe, yeah. And uh, so our engineer, Roger Nichols, who was a brilliant uh, guy and um, had been working with computers for, for years before anybody else was. And he, uh, I remember we said, you know, that Roger Lynn drum machine, you know, it's, it's not good enough. It's too bad. It's, it's, it wasn't uh, full frequency recording. It was like, uh, you know, low sample rate. And also, uh, you know, you couldn't really man manipulate the beats that much. So, so to which we had a machine that could, you know, was just as uh, full frequency as the digital machine we're using. And and Roger said, uh, Yeah, I can, I can make that. I can, I think I can build one of those. <laughs> he says, All I need is about two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so we just, we had about two hundred thousand dollars left in our budget. Like that was like half the budget or something. And we just gave him the money, and then uh, we uh, knocked off for three weeks. And then he came in with this machine, you know. Um, but it was, as you say, it was uh, primitive compared to what they have now. It was, uh, he had to type in the uh, bytes themselves, you know, <laughs> a list of, of bytes um, to get a sound out of it. And, like, I remember he said, I, this, this uh, symbol or whatever lasts too long for the memory. There's not a, he says, I got to wait till, till September. So he said, well, what, what's happening? He says, well, that's when Intel is coming out with an, a better chip. And so finally, uh, you know, after a while, we, we could finally uh, record, you know, long things. But uh, it was very uh, laborious and boring and stupid. Well, I mean, what, what always amazed me. But it worked. It yes, did work. And it sounds great. But, yeah, it did but, work. But at the same time, you had access to literally any drummer in the world. That's true. We And although we always, um, you know, we were sort of scrupulous about it, we'd always try to do the tr a track first live. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes we'd get it. And if we didn't, 
we'd take a sample from the track we just recorded and credit the drummer who who played it. I mean, at the same time, something like the title track of Asia. I mean, that's Steve Gadd. I think on the on the first take, yeah, was, or second. Maybe. Yeah, we did two takes. I think we edited first and second take together. Yeah. So when appropriate, you were very happy to use. Something yeah, you know, it's whatever works. You know, was our philosophy. He goes around to drum clinic still showing people how to play that that uh, those fills that solo. You know, it's that, that's how yeah. You know, we just set them loose. There was a we had a, a long chart. It was like eight pages or something that uh, I had come up with. With uh, Larry Carlton helped me to to uh, put it together, and uh, it was taped onto his stand. And he just uh, there was a part where it just said drum solo. <laughs> and he just he, he did and that's what he, he obliged did. he, he, he provided mm-hmm. the drum solo yeah. and we'll hear that for just a moment one of the things that you know people struggle to understand for years and uh, maybe can never understand having not been inside the partnership is is just sort of who did what, how it worked. It's a question you could probably answer in an entire book, which maybe you'll actually write one day, but what insight can you provide about the nature of the songwriting and production partnership? Well, um, you know, we just get together at either his, his apartment or my apartment or when we're in California, we have rented houses, but... Uh, and I'd, you know, be at the piano and, you know, I'd have some ideas or he'd have some ideas and he would have a bass or guitar or something and uh, we'd just kick it around and whatever was the whatever was the funniest thing we could think of that we, we started working on that, you know, <laughs> whatever seemed really like... Uh, Both musically and lyrically kind of. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, we wanted the music to be good so that it wasn't just a pastiche or something like, or a, uh, you know, a straight parody. We... we we had, you know, because we were jazz fans, we had certain standards, but, um, you know, it had to be, it had to sort of, you know, pass for straight, even though we knew it wasn't, you know, it was like, because uh, I, I don't like, you know, I didn't, I didn't, we didn't want the humor to be broad, you know, we wanted it to be uh, nuanced. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now, I'm in the studio with Donald Fagan, I'm Brian Hyatt, and we'll be right back. So, Don, we were talking a little bit about how the partnership on a songwriting and production level worked with Walter, and you, you said whatever made you laugh the most is kind of what you went with. In your book, when you described your first songwriting sessions together, mm-hmm. you said you basically end up rolling on the floor, just cracking each other up. That's true. I, I guess, you know, uh, you know, we were kids, you know, and it was, it was just... problem is we couldn't really take it that seriously, I suppose. You know, we, like... You know, we admired, uh, we, we were big fans of the Birds, I remember, and uh, hmm. uh, Frank Zappa, and um, couldn't take anything seriously, apparently. <laughs> but, um, and, uh, you know, we loved Motown and soul, soul music and blues and so on, but when we'd start writing, it would just get out of hand, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Walter, I think, used to get more out of hand than I did, and I'd have to sort of bring him back a little bit, so it wouldn't be too, uh, you know, ridiculous. At the same time, I think you said that your ideas tended to be on a lyrical level more on a fantasy level and that he would come more from observation of life. Um, I think that's fair. Um, you know, I, I read a lot of science fiction when I was a kid. He did too. But um, I was sort of, uh, I liked 
the kind of science fiction that commented on the present uh, by kind of extrapolating from the present and and you know creating a future that would kind of bring out certain things about the present that in a funny way and Walter was um, I think he had greater powers of observation like he was uh, you know uh, observing people psychology um, he was he was really uh, you know he could have I think if he wanted to he could have been a novelist or short story writer if he had the patience you've written great nonfiction. you don't think that you you could have done the same if you'd had the patience no i, I can't write fiction I've, I've actually given it a try once in a while it's just not my it always has to be grounded in some real real thing i'm I, you know i can write essays but not not fiction you guys had a lot of similarities you also had uh you know major differences in, in your sort of background so walter you know had a as you said, rough childhood, you know, his dad died when he was 16, his mom was out of the picture, it was it was not smooth sailing, uh, whereas you grew up bored, eventually when you moved to a part of New Jersey you hated, but with a stable family. Yeah, and my family was, was uh, relatively stable, yeah, for sure. I mean, how did those differences play themselves out in in your estimation well you know i think i got to see you know at, at uh, close range you know what can happen i think to somebody if if you know the parenting isn't really there and um you know he uh you know gave him a lot of problems he was i think he was very insecure he uh you know, um, as time went on, he uh, had had some uh, you know drug problems, and I think he you know uh, people who are uh, either have abusive parents or parents who give mixed messages, whatever, or aren't there. It's it is more difficult in a way because they uh, unless someone else comes in to take their place, you know they I think their uh, their center is wavy, mm. uh, their their core, and it's it's. Uh, and I think it's it's very painful uh, on some level that you know perhaps I don't even understand. And uh, so there, I think that's that's why a lot of uh, I think people in that situation end up you know trying to medicate themselves or uh, have you know various other problems. You've written of your own issues with anxiety and such, but mm-hmm. this this forced you, I guess, to be the the saner member of the partnership. For the most part, you know, we we supported each other. I think, uh, and uh, you know, it's like you know. I went through my own stuff too sometimes, and he was he was great. But um, you know, he uh, he certainly had his share of problems. What's incredible is it's now and sad, of of course, as well. But it, it's now a body of work. What you guys did together, you, there's a beginning and an end, at least uh, on a recorded level. You know, and it doesn't just encompass uh, the Steely Dan records. There's solo records that you guys actually worked on together in, mm-hmm. in some form. I mean, are you satisfied with? What came from the partnership? Did you did you eke out? Well, enough first of from all, a, yeah. You mentioned body of work. I yeah. remember when we, uh, you know, uh, won a, a album of the year at the Grammys. Um, yeah. I remember Walter said something. We weren't being applauded for our body of work, but rather for our bodies that work. <laughs> Which were, you know, we were getting on at that time. <laughs> Is it too soon for you to to be able to look back and 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 say, well, you know, we did this much together? You know, yeah, I think we did pretty well. You know, I think uh, you know, I'm not really that interested in stuff that I've done. I'm always sort of, uh, I'm I'm uh, always working on something. You know, uh, not always with uh, great success, but I'm I'm always more interested in what I'm doing presently than uh, than the old stuff. And you know, other people have to judge it if it you know was any good. Do you, any regrets that, that you didn't get uh, another Steely Dan record out together? 
Yeah, kind of. You know, Walter, um, he, um, I think, you know, uh, yeah, he had some health problems, and, and uh, especially after maybe 2011, 12, he, I felt that, you know, he, I think just being ill for so long, he, he, he had a little bit of a personality change, and mm. he was, he was uh, much more isolated, I think, and uh, so on, and he kind of... Uh, he wasn't that interested in, in, in working on Steely Dan records anymore. And it, it also might have to do with what you were speaking of. I think he, you know, the uh, specter of, of doing an album that would, you know, be on the same standard that, that we did previously. I mean, uh, but, you know, maybe that scared him a little bit. Or I, maybe he didn't feel he had the energy. Yeah, and it's, right. I mean, and that's something, you know, when, when you talk to people who've done amazing things already, that does loom like you you know you're going to be judged by that standard and that that can be you know yeah it didn't really bother me that much but i think <laughs> yeah i think he he had a thing about it and um yeah it's true like because i i did ask him uh, once in a while if he wanted to do something and he'd he'd usually say yeah sure but then you know he he wouldn't call me or you know whatever so he, he it's obviously he he's lost some of the enthusiasm Obviously, there was a period when you guys fell out of touch before the reunion in the 90s. You guys got back together actually way before, of course, uh, before the comeback album. And then what people don't really have a sense of, and, you know, it's 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 your business to a certain extent, but, you know, the sort of ebb and flow of, of the relationship in the 2000s, besides that little bit of distancing in the in this decade, was was it an ebb and flow or were you guys pretty close or how did it all kind of work? Um well, you know, I think uh, after we got back together uh, in, I guess, in the early 90s, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we both had families at that point, and like a lot of other groups, you know, you don't see each other as much, you have, you know, uh, responsibilities and so on, or children or whatever, so, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't like when we were kids, but, you know, we were, we were always friends, and... Um, you know, uh, except for maybe the last couple of years when he, I think he, because of his health, he, he was more isolated. We were always like, uh, every time we'd, we'd talk, we'd, we'd still be laughing. And so and it was, it was always fun. A friend of his, uh, told one of my colleagues that he, that Walter was like actually drinking again in the, in the two thousands. Um, I said he wasn't a big drinker as far as I know. I remember seeing him having, you know, some wine once in a while, but that wasn't, wasn't an issue. It wasn't a big thing as I remember. Did you? Enjoy- he was more into opiates on a continuing basis. <laughs> no, uh, intermittently. Not to ever compare you to Mick and Keith. I, you know, I know that that Mick was. It's a hard comparison to draw, but I know that Mick sometimes. You know, people love Keith and 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 worship his sort of you know um, pushing it to the edge lifestyle. But it can be very frustrating to be Mick and have to deal with Keith. I don't know if it was and vice ever- versa. I'm sure. <laughs> Good point. Yes. Were you ever sort of Mick in that scenario where you're trying to keep it together? And You know, I remember sort of these brief periods um, in when we were touring in the early 70s. Uh, I think, you know, he hated touring then. And he, you know, he, was, he became a little hard to deal with then. And I remember having a talk about it. And then he was cool, you know, for years afterwards. And then, uh, you know, there were a few other periods where, where I felt I should talk to him. Things did fray during, during Gaucho and not just because of the, the sort of perfectionism or however you would phrase it. Yeah, he was, he was in a really bad, bad situation in the, uh, the end of the 70s. That's true. What were the musical 
differences, if any, between your sort of tastes and what what sort of sounds or approaches or whatever was more him or more you, if that can be teased out at all? It's hard to say. I think maybe if, if someone listens to his solo records, which yeah. I which I love, uh, and my solo records, it's I think that's probably the best way to tell. Although we were very very much of one mind for the most part i think uh generally speaking like um you know when i first met him he was and he, you know i just heard the songs he had written when he was 17 18 they were maybe folkier he had weird chords but but a lot of it was guitar based i would say more um yeah kind of you know new york folky and uh I think I was already starting to put more like jazz harmony into it um, and, you know, so on. But it didn't seem to be a problem. We just, you know, used a little of his stuff and a little of my stuff. And we just kind of, the songs just grew like uh, <laughs> excrescences, you know. <laughs> the use of, uh, you know, fantastic and sometimes incongruous, theoretically, jazz chords in, in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. One time you guys cited uh, Laura Nero as an influence on that, is that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I remember Walter it, at school, he had a, uh, was sharing a, dorm, a very large dorm room with the roommate, and he had these huge Altec uh, speakers, um, studio monitors, these used studio monitors he had bought on the floor. And uh, I remember once he said, "Here, you got to li- hear this." And we went up, and he had uh, this Laura Nero record, um, and uh, I was the one that had like uh, it had. Uh, I remember it had a song, "Chambers, Walls of Heartache," mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we were amazed by that record because it used a lot of uh, uh, stuff from modern music, like uh, you know, Hindemith and Bartok, you know, type of chords with. Uh, triads with uh you know the wrong bass note and stuff like that plus she she had a way of of uh of mixing mixing it in with blues and motown type stuff that was fantastic and uh i think that uh we started to become like sort of more experimental uh after hearing that and a few other a few other things Without doing a, a music theory lesson for our listeners, there, there's a, a, a chord that you guys uh, named the, the Moo Major. If, if people heard it, they would recognize it. Do you remember how that became such a, a signature for you guys, or where you possibly stole it from? Yeah, that's we didn't, certainly didn't invent no, that. No, like, it goes back to the <clears throat> was, 13th century or uh, whatever. It probably yeah, does, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's you know certain pops, like Stephen Sondheim you know, uses that chord all the time. Yeah, it was just uh, you know I, I was just I think part of my my piano style. If I'm harmonizing something, I'll just naturally go to that 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 kind of harmony, that kind of chord. And uh, I remember our our guitar player in the in the '70s, Den, Denny Diaz. Um, he wasn't used to playing that on the guitar, so we uh, you know Walter found all the voicings. That you could play on the guitar of that one thing. Some some of them apparently were impossible to play unless you had seven fingers or something. <laughs> and we we wrote a little sort of treatise on the chord, which we called the Moo Major chord, and uh, uh, basically to try to prank guitar players who thought that you know maybe they were missing something. <laughs> there, there's been people yeah breaking their fingers yeah. trying to play these chords. Since I know it was yeah. a terrible thing to do, and you know we were <laughs> it's we a, were kids. You know? It's the keyboardist revenge on guitar players. Yeah. 
Walter was, uh, you know, a fantastic bass player, mm-hmm. a killer lead guitarist, among other things. But he wasn't always excited about playing, you know, on records or you know, even sometimes live. What what was that about? You know. One of your engineers, uh, Elliot Shiner, said he was always confused why he didn't play more. Yeah, I was too. It's, uh, I think, it, again, it, was, it goes back to a certain kind of insecurity. Um, he, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, he's a great player, but, uh, you know, for some reason he, he was just, uh, didn't have uh, confidence. As, as time went on, he, he uh, became more confident about his playing, but, uh, you know, I'd certainly always encourage him to play because I loved his touch and his... His ideas were, you know, amazing. Your keyboard player playing, though, has always been kind of close to the center. And it's often simple parts for all the complexity. It's it's often you're kind of just playing the chords, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no particular interest in showing off on your part. No, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I do have, I think, certain limitations to, to my playing, but... Um, uh, yeah, it's it's. I think just my role is more of a, as a rhythm player. Um, you know, uh, sometimes in uh, live, I'll you know uh, give myself a solo once in a while or something like that. But on records, um, you know, I don't know. There's you know, rock and roll. It's it's kind of uh, underwhelming sometimes to hear a piano <laughs> piano solo, at least in the style I play, which is some kind of single note right hand beboppy style you know it's it's like it's it sounds a little weak sometimes with with the the other instrumentation you know so i, I guess i just haven't sometimes i i've done some things on synth- synthesizer that uh yeah i think fit in better you once thought about applying supposedly to uh, be in bob dylan's touring band or auditioning wouldn't that have been dull for you given the kind of chords and and simplicity of of his music uh no because um I think if you listen to the way, for instance, Richard Manuel uh, hmm. plays Bob Dylan songs, they're they're not boring at all. They're, he he has a lot of gospel uh, flourishes and uh, what you call added note harmony, like the Moo Major, right, right, something like that. So he he I th- I think you know if I did it, it would be more along those lines, maybe more even. Uh, you know, with a little, little more uh, jazz stuff in it, and I think it would work. Um, so you, you still know, want the gig, maybe? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like uh, he seems to—he's got his voice back. Sounds like to me a little bit. I, I'm hearing that too. It's—it's yeah. it's, it's, it's maybe I don't this know how that happened. Well, he's got—he's got a voice back. A, some, yeah, he's got one of his voices back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were always—you always seemed dubious about your own singing. Is mm-hmm. that have you ever grown to a level of comfort with with your voice? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, you know I've had some uh, coaching along the way, and huh. uh, it's much easier to sing now than when I didn't know how to sing at all. Is there a voice you wish you had? <laughs> well, uh, Ray Charles, <laughs> maybe. Or, you know, I I I I just consider myself a great singer for sure, and I but I I do the best I can. I think the thing that gets me by is is for the kind of stuff we write, I have the right attitude. Attitude, yeah. And that's uh, you know just as important, I think, in uh, 
rhythm and blues and rock music. I've somehow found a thing uh, where where I go to YouTube and I watch people attempt to cover Steely Dan songs. Yeah, uh, that's usually a pretty sad <laughs> experience. A lot of people attempt Josie, uh, mm. which which is interesting. Well, I, I call it the Bill Murray effect. Uh huh. Because uh, you know, is when he he on SNL when he used to yeah. do lounge versions of Star Wars things like that. <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> We were talking about you know what Steely Dan is, and now you're you you know you're gonna you already have played shows without Walter. Mm -hmm. So is that in your mind is that still Steely Dan, or is it you fronting the Steely Dan band who used to be Steely Dan? I mean, you know what I mean. How do, how do you see that as what the thing is without him? Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, uh, I would pref actually prefer to call it, you know, Donald Fagan and Steely Dan Band or something like that. We got a lot of flack from uh, from uh, Live Nation, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, <laughs> about calling it Steely Dan, and um, you know, I th that's an ongoing uh, debate. In other words, they want you to call it Steely Dan for commercial reasons, or, or you mean they do want you? Yeah, yeah, right, 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 yeah. right. It just sells better. Yeah, there's suits, you know. It feels more like the other thing you said to you. And to me, it does, because to me, still, yeah, it was just me and Walter, really. It was like a concept that we had together. and um, But, uh, you know, it doesn't... It's, it's no big thing to me either way, frankly. But uh, I, I think, uh, in, in my mind, it's still, again, it was me and Walter. So, so uh, you know... Um, you know, I'm hoping I could persuade these people to let me do what I want, as far as that goes. Did you get to have the 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 final conversation or conversations with him that you would have wanted to have? Well, that's a. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of you know, I you know I heard when I heard he was really ill. I was on the road in I think Salinas, Kansas, and I flew back. I had a day off. And he was in his apartment in New York, and um, I was really glad that I went. You know, it was like um, I could see he was really struggling. Um, but you know, it's it's like he like when I when I, I put a chair next to the bed, and he like grabbed my hand, and it was like <laughs> something he would has never done ever before. Wow. And um, we had a great talk and you know he was listening to hard bop mm. uh his wife had on a like a on a dexter gordon record or something like that and um he was still very funny uh even though he was very weak and i'm i'm you know really glad i had those hours you know it was important i think to do that you know you had to go out and play of all things stadium gigs at a big festival while this was going on without him yeah it was very weird you know, not having him there. Um, and, uh, you know, we got through it. And then we had these these gigs booked in October uh, after that. So, uh, you know, I did it. And after a while, it, it didn't seem as strange, you know, after a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, it'll always feel a little weird, you know. I mean, that's it's always going to feel that way. But, uh, you know, I think uh, I can handle it, you know. And how long do you doesn't seem like retirement or anything like it is uh, is in the offing how how long do you want to be a touring musician and and keep mm -hmm. got the night flyers still a damn band so there's a, possibly mm -hmm. recording there's a lot you yeah could for be. sure yeah yeah no i feel good you know i'm gonna be 70 
in January, but uh, you know, I'm feeling really good. Um, you know, I try to, you know, do enough <laughs> exercise to keep myself from falling apart. You know, hmm. What do you do? What's your? Uh... I go swimming a couple yeah. times a week, and you know, sometimes floor exercises, things like that. But uh, have you stayed? I'm, off the I'm not runs? like Sorry. one of those. I don't. I don't try to get ripped or anything. <laughs> that's that's never been. That's never going to happen. You know. Uh, but uh, you know, I try to keep myself going. Do you want to keep touring like just pretty much as long as you physically can? Yeah, you know, yeah. It, it keeps you young for sure. Touring, I, I notice like when I'm off, I don't feel as good as when I'm on. You know, if I'm, uh, I got to be the recording or uh, touring, or and I, I especially enjoying live performance more than I used to because uh, we have a fantastic band. I got a couple of fantastic bands, and yeah. uh, it's just so much fun to uh, to be with these guys and, and to play. You know. And finally, you know, there are uh, if anyone who's read your tour diary of with the uh, Dukes of September yeah. would would get a, a pretty um, jaundiced view of the current state of society. Among yeah, other things. Yeah, it really and, wasn't and we, about the tour. Yeah. It was really about <laughs> just traveling through the world as it is. Yeah, in a certain way. And, and I think everyone uh, who wasn't already feeling the same way as you is after this year, pretty much. Any thinking <laughs> yeah. human. But is there anything that you see on the cultural or Political or whatever horizon that that gives you hope. Uh, well, you know, actually, the uh, this Alabama thing that happened, uh, I think, uh, you know, it was a, a small thing, I think, but it was um, there was something hopeful about uh, the fact that uh, in Alabama, they uh, at least they don't uh, they're not uh, so jaded and jaundiced that they would actually like uh, elect a uh, you know a uh, big douche like that guy you know to the senate i mean really yeah. give me a fucking break man <laughs> you know it's got to stop somewhere you know <laughs> well so this has been rolling stone music now we've been lucky enough to have donald fagan in the studio thank you so much thank you for being here and and for all the years of music is a, to be sappy for a moment and uh we will be back next week at 1 p.m. here on Volume, Sirius XM 106. In the meantime, download us as a podcast, subscribe to us as a podcast, and leave us a nice review if you can. Come on, we have Donald Fagan on. Come on. Yeah, baby. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. Thanks again, Donald. Thanks.